Welcome to Making Comics, a podcast exploring the comics process from two different perspectives. I'm Keith Foster. I write Kadoja, in addition to reviewing horror on my blog, KeithRFoster.com and iHorror.com. And I'm Scott Loss, the creator and artist of The Second Shift in Wanderers of Melisanda for The Accidental Aliens. I'll edit the fact that it took us uh, at least four times as long to get our simple introductions down that we should have had memorized. I mean, we do have memorized, and that's probably the problem. We're at that point now where we feel so comfortable about it that we just fuck up, and that's what we did. So yay us. Yeah, yes. yes. So did you try yeah, your beer please, yet? Please get rid of it. Here, that. I'll tell you what, while you're while you're trying your uh, beer, I'll uh, I'll share something that um that I'm really happy about, which is I got my vaccine today. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Man. Yeah, I'm 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 stoked. I'm also doubly stoked that it was the Johnson and Johnson vaccine because it is a one dose vaccine, which means that's it. That's it. No more tears. No more tears. No more no more uh, I was gonna make a <laughs> that's that's a, that's a song I don't like by Ozzy Osbourne. It, it was it was great. It was great to do it and, and, and get it done. And uh, as a nice side benefit of it, I so I, I had already only planned to take a half day off from work, but that was when I wasn't sure which vaccine I was going to get. So once I found out I was getting the full dose with the understanding that if I'm going to get any side effects, very unlikely, but I might as well just go home and not be at work. So I went ahead and took the whole day off, and then I came home and I, I basically chilled and read a whole lot of comics. Which uh, I don't know. Once I get nice. well, yeah. Once I get done with a whole lot of comics, it really makes me feel happy. I finally read most of Redneck, and I really enjoy it. That was a great recommendation on your. Oh, part. good. Yeah, yeah. Really, really okay, enjoying cool. Redneck. Redneck is. I, I'm. I think I'm eight issues in. I only bought the first twelve. But uh, I am stealing myself for what's going to be a return trip to probably SoCal Comics to see if I can get some more. And now I'm putting myself on the clock. That's awesome, if man. People hear that; they'll know there's more. Yeah, that's. Uh, it's always it's always good to find a good comic, especially in the dollar bins. Mm-hmm. Like and you can just go back and and see what else they have and keep picking them up. So Hell I'm yeah. glad I'm glad you like the recommendation. Hell yeah! And 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 another comic note that. I was uh, it was kind of funny when I listened back to to uh, the podcast that comes out Monday which was uh, which is two podcasts ago and I had put myself on the clock to go to book off and get those books that I wanted and sure enough I had gone on Sunday and gotten them so I got I got Oh the, awesome man. Yeah, I got some Alan yeah, so Moore filled traits. the gap. Yeah, I got the Alan the rest of the Alan Moore Swamp things that I wanted and what else did I get? I grabbed a few more too that were pretty cool. Oh, some Sin Cities. I got some Sin Cities. Oh, sweet. Yeah, pretty much all the books we talked about. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm making <laughs> good cool. on, on past promises. Did you get the Silent Night edition? I only just got the one and the three, which is The Hard Goodbye and The Big Fat Kill. Those were the two I got so far. And okay. and it bothered me because they didn't... Yeah, I think four they had, but I'm not a big fan of whatever four is. I'm, I'm guessing two is probably A Dame to Kill for. Is it a which, Dame to Kill which for? Which they did not have. Okay. Um, and then they also didn't have that yellow bastard. So I didn't. So I, I passed okay. on that. And then the problem is, as with any successful comic, they've re-released the Sin City books a bunch of times. And I like I like the one that has the black, the, the predominantly black spines. But they had yellow bastard in the ones that have white spines. But I'm like, no, no, no. I can't go mixing and matching my spines. I, I I'll probably end up buying both editions just because I like both spines. You know that's how this is going to work, right? But uh, oh yeah, for sure. I I've been looking at Danger Girl the Absolute Edition, which I don't need. It's like an oversized version of a book I already have. Yeah. So uh, 
yeah, what is the one I um I, I can't even remember what mine is, but it, essentially it has the whole Danger Girl storyline. So I pretty much don't need any other book, but I keep on looking. It's so dumb. D uh, double and triple dipping because I have the single issues, I have one hardcover, and now I'm looking for the oversized. It's just who we so, are. It's who it's, we. It's, I'm gonna, it's all stupid. I'm gonna shout out a good friend of mine, Scheme Richards. He he said something one time when I was doing my previous podcast, the vinyl exam, and it's always stuck with me. It's just one of my favorite phrases. I, I may I don't think I've mentioned it here before, but his line is "collectors collect." That's all you need to say, man. It's just like that. That's what it's what we do. And Scheme Richards, um, for those not it's aware, true. is an amazing collector. He has he has a collection of vintage pinball machines. He has damn near everything Bruce Lee you could possibly have. He has damn near everything Muhammad Ali oh, nice. you could possibly have. He has amazing stuff and really a ton of seventies nostalgia stuff. But yeah, collectors collect, man. It's just what we do. How's the beer? The beer is excellent. So this Harland. I can't remember if this was on or off the air, but the Harlan Brewing Company, I got a hazy IPA by them after having their Ube Milkshake IPA, and it's it's pretty fantastic. It's It has this nice, thick quality, this sim very similar to the Ube Milkshake, and uh, it's just very smooth. So, big fan of the hazies, and this is definitely top-notch. So, I, I'll probably end up getting a four-pack of this. Nice. Because, uh, yeah, I, I got it at Trader Joe's, and I just grabbed a single because I was trying a bunch of stuff out. But this definitely deserves a four-pack. We are angling hard for that Trader Joe's promotion, guys. Like, I mean, the last the last three <laughs> weeks, we, we've just been just been really, really repping Trader Joe's. So Trader Joe's, you're welcome. I'm, yeah, I'm we're, sure. We're... Look, they're, they're an unknown business. Everybody can use a little leg up. And I think more people need to find out about this business, Trader Joe's. So Yeah, that, that small indie company known as Trader oh, Joe's. Oh, God. Yeah, we're going to get to that. We're going to get that, to that. I think that's going to be a fun, the, yeah, we're gonna get to fun that. conversation later. But um, <laughs> but why don't, we, why don't we launch into yeah. to what we're doing, man? So I, I'd like you to go first, man. What was your week like? It's been a very slow week. It, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I think I am reaching the point. I don't know if you, you reach these in your, your year at certain time of years. So... This is roughly when WonderCon is, and I think my brain is like, I'm not supposed to be doing everything that I normally do. I'm supposed to be preparing for WonderCon and uh, leaving town. And so there's just something about doing anything that I normally do in my everyday life that I do not want to do. So my productivity has gone down, unfortunately, for drawing. I think the last time we talked, I had a couple of pages done. I think I've finished a page and a half since then. Um... In all honesty, it was probably a couple of panels, so maybe even less than one page now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but it's moving along. I, I was working on it before we got on the horn here, and I have tons of commissions piling up, and they keep on adding. So my freelance work that I do every month, they've come a-knocking again, and uh, two new or one older client and one newer client is asking for commission work. So I pushed one back completely. I told them, look, it's it, hit me up next month. This month is too crazy. And uh, my monthly freelance work, I have to, when we get off of this call, I actually have to finish something before I take off for a couple of days if that happens. Um, I had a road trip plan for this week. So it, it kind of worked out perfectly. And uh, so my brain was like, you're leaving soon. You're going to go have fun and, you know, uh, eat and drink and be merry. And uh, so I was kind of prepping for that. But right now it's up in the air if it's even going to happen. Um, my buddy who I was going to take a trip with, his coworker 
came down with strep and tomorrow he's taking a COVID test. We'll see. And if, if that guy's got COVID, I think we're screwed. Uh, so we won't be going on the road trip. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a real major bummer. Where were you going to go? Uh, Arizona. We were going to go to Flagstaff, I want to say, and then to Phoenix. We we're going to do a uh, horseshoe bend, Grand Canyon to horseshoe bend. Nice, nice. Uh, so yeah, and hopefully it'll be like we're we're doing like hiking trips and like just eating and drinking. So. It's like we're not going to go take in a ton of sites. And then like the sites we are taking in, it's like the Grand Canyon. We're going to go hike. Yeah. So um, I'm pretty sure we'll have a lot of space. And I have no idea what the horseshoe bend is. Okay. Well, that's okay. You're going into a cold. You're going into a cold. That's pretty cool. I did read a lot of comics. I've been reading comics. That's one thing I have been doing. It's like, that's a treat for me. So I've been reading stuff. So, But if you want to get into that later, we can. That we, well, I'm going to get to mine. We'll, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll freestyle it. We'll freestyle it. But I did want to get back yeah, to sure. the, the a couple things, right? The the WonderCon thing. And uh, because where I got my vaccine today was the Anaheim Convention Center. And it was surreal. It was surreal because my body clock is also saying WonderCon. And and walking in there, it was like a long line. Where's my table? Where do I set up? You know, like I'm waiting for a long time. Like everything just felt so natural. I actually posted that on Facebook and a couple, one person put, uh, where are the Funko Pops? And then another person posted, where are the cosplayers? <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was that was pretty funny. But uh, but yeah, man. So like it. yeah, it, it is weird. And I think it's also a little, it's even weirder now because now I think most of us feel like the end is in sight. And we're hoping that conventions come back soon. That said, I'm absolutely delighted that Phoenix got delayed to the end of the year. So, you know, I, I feel a lot mm-hmm. better there. And that now means that, oh boy, I can't even keep track of this anymore. I mean, I suppose, assuming I get in, my first convention could be Rose City Comic Con in Portland. But uh, I'm, I'm just waiting. They just opened up the exhibitor portal there. And they went to a, a lot of conventions have done this, I think, because they want to ensure that fans have a really nice experience and don't just go to the same booths to the same people the same year. The conventions mm-hmm. now like everybody, some of them like everybody resubmitting for a booth and not grandfathering in last year's booth owners anymore. Um, obviously, you need to. Interesting. Well, you need to get to the top rung to be able to pull that shit. You know, the the only ones that I know of that do it, I mean, I'm assuming San Diego Comic-Con does it, although the irony is they probably don't because of all the ones where everything's the same year to year, San Diego Comic-Con's the top of the list. Like, you can just pick uh, uh, somebody and they're going to be in the same place next year, assuming that they want to be. But the ones that I'm aware of, where they reevaluate every year, Emerald City does, New York does. Uh, now Rose City does because they've probably gotten big enough to pull that. And then um, Denver, Denver does. And the same thing. I remember a couple of years ago, I was talking to the the guy who put together the booths when I was renewing. You know, I did the whole renew on site for next year thing at Denver. And that year he had mm-hmm. said, yeah, we're probably this is this might be the last year we do this. And he he was the one who told me what I just said, that. You know, we we love the vendors, but uh, we also love the fans. And, you know, the fans are are going to drive a lot of interest in the convention. And, you know, it it would be tough to be a fan 
and just go to the same convention every year. I don't think anybody wants that. So I'm willing to be, you know, play my role and, and hope I get in and make a case and uh, and we'll see what happens. But best case, I get into Portland. When is Rose City? It's right around Labor Day. It's early September, if I remember right. Oh, okay. So they'll they'll be, I think, I think the world will be a little bit more open then. I mean, just the fact that vaccine availability seems to be going through the roof right now at least in California and again we have we have more people than damn near anybody so I'm hoping all the other states out there have it as well and and I'm assuming people get yeah, you know yeah. allocations and all that stuff but anyway so yeah it was it was definitely weird to be there today and to your point going in there and waiting in line made me realize that you know WonderCon would have been maybe 2 weeks from now or something like that I, and on the 17th, go back to your vaccination thing. That's when my first appointment is. I don't have mine until then. But like you said, there's actually a lot of avenues in California to get it. So uh, a few of my uh, friends were telling me about CVS. Yeah. Like you can go there pretty early and end up getting it that same day. So I might look into that or I just might wait until the 17th. Yep. Um, I I booked the appointment on the 4th and it's already the 9th. So yeah. It's, you know, time's flying. So the 17th might be here before I even know it. So my, I might just stick it out yep. and wait. So it's not that big of a Hey, that's how it happened with me, too. I actually had a bird in hand with, uh, I was supposed to do one at Kaiser next Monday. And then this one came up through Orange County, which was pretty great. So, yeah, I, I did it. I did it. To my point through the week, you know, what I'm going to try to start doing going forward is really focus on the thing that sort of held my interest as opposed to maybe a laundry list of all the things I did. And the thing I did that I think is the most interesting to talk about is that I am now cranking through the fourth draft of my novel. What's interesting about writing this draft, and I don't think I mentioned this. I hope I didn't mention it to you or on the podcast before. I don't think I did. So so the interesting thing about writing the first couple drafts, mainly the second and third, because the first, you're just, first draft, man, it is just be crazy, be creative, have fun, wing it. The second and third drafts are kind of about picking that stuff, picking through that stuff and and forming it, you know, figuring out what you wrote that's great and what you wrote that you thought was great that is actually trash and should get thrown away. And uh, and so, you know, I came out of the third draft. The interesting thing about those first couple drafts is it is the kind of writing work where you go to bed thinking, how do I solve this problem? How do I connect this plot thread? How do I connect this character thread? How do I build this thing? How do I build that thing? So it's very big problems that you're trying to solve in terms of your problem solving. And they're the kind of things where a walk can clear it up. A good a good night's sleep can clear it up if you think about it when you're going to bed and, and maybe you wake up with some inspiration. The interesting thing about the fourth draft is that it is nothing like that. Um, I, I gave an example as a joke, my favorite joke to mention about what these drafts, what I've heard these drafts are like is let's say in one of, in your earlier drafts, you have your character be right-handed and that plays some kind of factor into the novel. And then you get work, you get comments back from people and they say, we really think the character should be left-handed. So what you do is you then proceed to make your character left-handed But that's going to create some issues depending on how many times you call it out. So you need to kind of comb through the novel and do that. So I wrote down the vague things that I'm changing and and the two vague things that were big notes. And again, keep in mind, these won't mean much, but they're enough to talk on. Number one, where my lead character is from. And number two, 
a change in the situation of a secondary character, what would be like a supporting actor in terms of uh, movie talk, right? But this is a novel. Was that a note someone gave you or you just wanted to change where they were from? That is the result of the three people that gave the summation of the three people that gave me comments on the third draft of the novel, their read of the entire novel. Because I, you know, again, I sent it out to three readers and they read it front to back. And they were like, "That doesn't guy. That guy doesn't seem like he's from there." Like, um, that was, no, was that the it comment, was. Or? It, it, it wasn't like that. It was more of where the character is currently from, and where the character lived, and where the character is don't necessarily connect as well as what if where the character is is where the character was from. So it's more simplification. Oh, and, I see. and that it would make you know, yes. I kind of had the character grow up in place A live in place B for their life. And now this novel is taking place in place C. So their thing was, why why shouldn't the character have just grown up in place C? And I'm like, that's actually a mm-hmm. great a great note. And that kind of change really changes almost everything. That's the thing. It's a really simple change. It sounds simple, but it informs everything because now you've grown up there. And now that creates something different. You know, it where I live right now is entirely different to me than had I grown up here, moved away to Houston and to Philadelphia for my whole life and then come back. So, you know, likewise, if I if I went to Houston right now for something, which is where I went to grades one through 12, that would be a hell of a lot different. So that that change changes everything. So is it more beneficial for that guy to live where I mean to grow up where he lives currently because okay so here's my thought on that and and I'm not a writer so who knows um you are you you did that you did that you did that for a reason like you had him grow up you know born here raised here living here and so it kind of gives him a different worldview than me like someone who grew up in San Diego was born and raised in San Diego. So there was a reason for that. So when they say, why don't you just do this? Your answer could have been because it gives him a bigger worldview. He doesn't think about this city the same way everyone else in the town thinks about this city. So it makes him kind of an outsider or just coming from a different perspective from the people who were born and raised there. Yes. So, I, but I, don't, I haven't read your novel, so I don't know how important that is. Yes. But that could have been a counter to the question, and therefore, like canceling any kind of rewriting you would have to do throughout the story, because now you're making him a local. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So this this is where I'm going to be delicate here because I'm not interested in details. Obviously, you know that I keep this stuff guarded, and and that's yeah, probably yeah, my yeah. Own I, I didn't want to. But ask I, anything I will tell either. you this. Yep. There will be a day where you read this novel and then I will tell you what the change is and you will be like, oh my God, that was such a good note. You know, without going into details, I can just say that in fact, the the kind of the reverse is true, Scott, that when I first wrote it, the place where I had had him grow up was a bit arbitrary and, and it would have made more sense from the ah, jump okay. had I just had him be from the area where he is currently placed if that makes sense. So that's that's what's interesting about notes like that. Sometimes you need an outsider to tell you the thing that was right in front of your damn face. You know, to, to, to go back in time a little bit to the first and second drafts, I hope, number one, that this novel gets published, obviously, but, but the second it gets published, I might light the first draft, every record of it, on fire. I might just delete all the files because the first draft 
had <laughs> promise, but it was such garbage compared to where I am now. And and that's something I think I've mentioned before when it comes to novel writing. The best thing about novel writing is the whittling because yeah, and and again, that's that's a Charles Johnson line. You have a chance to be perfect with the novel. That's the best part of novel writing. You know, you can continually craft it and craft it and craft it until the damn thing is perfect, or at least it's the best perfect you can do at this point in your life. Persistence is king. Working hard is king. Showing up every day and just writing for that hour or what or whatever you can do. Maybe you can't write for an hour a day. Maybe you can only write, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing my teacher on this, obviously. So, you know, whatever works for you works for you. But the point is to just continually show up every day and do that work. And uh, and one of the most interesting things about this process of, of especially the first two drafts was these points where I hit on something that I just tried and took a chance and just said, you know, this would be an interesting thing to write for workshop. Let me throw this out there. Let me throw out this brand new thing. I'm just going to flip it in a totally different way and see what people say. And damn it, if those workshops did not come back amazing. You know, the irony of workshops is that they worked as a complete opposite of my expectations. The ones where I thought I crushed it, let's just say with torn apart would be close to it. I either got torn apart or I walked home with a a hell of a lot different perspective on that piece. (laughs) And the ones where I felt... Yeah, yeah. And the ones where I felt... (laughs) And the ones where I felt you know, un- unsure. I was just like, I don't know, man, this might suck. Where a couple times people came back and said, this is the best thing you've ever wrote. Mm. In-, in fact, it's so good that your problem is now the rest of the novel because it's not this good. So <laughs> you need to go back and you need to make sure the rest of the novel is this good because if it's not, people are just going to be wondering when the good part comes, you know, which I found fascinating. And that's what this... You know, that that early second draft where I started to get these notes back and all of a sudden, you know, and, and obviously there's something wonderful in that. There's something wonderful in these people all think this is amazing, you know, and then we got to my professor and the professor just said, hey, I only have a couple real minor fixes here, man. This is really sharp. And it's like my professor is saying that there really aren't any major rewrites. This is amazing. Those are the moments that you just that just make sure that you're going to stay in this game, you know, and, um, and keep on doing it. And also they let you know that you're onto something and, and maybe you should stick this out and maybe you should keep working. But um, to, to fast forward that into the, into the fourth draft here, the interesting thing about these type of changes is I don't go to bed thinking about anything. They're not to be thought about, but what they are is to be crafted. So it's it's almost like being a machinist or a, or a whittler. You don't do those things by thinking about them. You do them by working with your hands. And that's what this draft is like. And and an interesting comparison to me in my brain is that I'm spoiling absolutely nothing with WandaVision here. That if you if you watch the show WandaVision, and I imagine most listeners of this podcast do or have... You know, there's this effect where the the quote bubble environment either expands outward or contracts inward and turns one type of thing into another. And it's this wave where it just all of a sudden after the wave hits, things change. And that's exactly how I equate this draft. You know, I am I am just putting this slow electromagnetic wave through the book 
and in its wake is the book that I will have and ahead of it is the book that is and I just need to have that wave slowly pass through my entire novel which is um it's just a different kind of work it's a different kind of revision if that makes sense yeah yeah totally no that's that hap- that same thing happened with me uh recently when I was laying out this most recent issue um I had a couple of uh artist influences uh just I've been doing some studying of people's works and, uh, and I've brought him up quite a few times on this podcast already, uh, Simone de Mayo. Just the way he lays pages out has was just like a breath of fresh air. And uh, I found that I was changing the style of how I was laying out panels. And like you said, it's just this wave that goes through the issue. And I was looking at pages I had already laid out. And I'm all, nope, can't lay it out like that anymore. That looks dumb in comparison. You know, it's just a, a shell of of a, a layout compared to the the new things that I'm I'm creating. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that's that's basically it. And let's let's get back to um let's finish up, I think, the Gary Yap trilogy and and get a little bit to his question which we left last episode by talking about what your adult stage, later stage, mature influences were in terms of comics cuz I can't wait to hear, man. I'm interested. So, you tell me, man, what uh, what were the things that really influenced you maybe, at, you know, before your process for Second Shift or through the process of Second Shift or anything like that? What you got, man? Well, I, I think the last time we talked about this subject, I had mentioned the, uh, the Holy Trinity of 90s comics, which is Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, and Rob Liefeld. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving forward, not even that far forward in time, uh, did I mention like J. Scott Campbell, like the cliffhanger guys? Did I mention them at all? No, no. Okay, so that would be the next stage in my art development, and it's and it's not like a huge leap from those guys, but uh, the next generation was J. Scott Campbell, Joe Matarera, and Herm- Humberto Ramos, and uh, uh, Travis Charre. He was not in the cliffhanger uh, uh, label, but I think he falls under that that era. And uh, Travis Charre was uh, highly influ- influential to many artists. And um, uh, me being one of them, and uh, there's some tendencies that I do that he did and I picked up from him. Uh, Guys like Joe Matarera, he's kind of one of the first American artists that I saw bridge the gap between Western comics and manga. And uh, the more that I think about it, it's it's very Marvel versus Capcom style. And uh, just these big, chunky shapes and uh, bold lines and there's just something about his work that was just completely different than anything going on uh, in the U.S. at that time. And where J. Scott Campbell was kind of like this refined, uh, sleek, Disney-influenced version of Jim Lee and Art Adams. And so those those two guys being major influences on me made J. Scott Campbell uh, one of the major influences uh, of my work like going forward. Um, Campbell didn't use a lot of cross hatching to get um you know muscle structure and uh backgrounds and and this and that he, he he used a lot of open lines and there was something about that that really appealed to me uh just a simplicity it's just like we'll just get the right outline of the character the right shape and um you know you can move forward and um you know kind of accent other things in your work so um those two guys were really influential in those ways and uh humberto ramos very cartoony, very similar to uh, somewhere in between Joe Mad and J. Scott Campbell. Just very cartoony, exaggerated 
expressions, facial features, everything. And, uh, you know, just also different from the guys I had mentioned prior. Uh, very clean line as well, just like J. Scott Campbell uh, and Joe Mad, actually. Uh, neither guy used tons of rendering. So just a, a different way to look at that type of art uh, that I hadn't thought about or seen prior to that. Okay, so let me let me take a pause there, and I want to ask you what you mentioned. You've mentioned this that just now, and you mentioned it in an episode before. What specifically is Travis Charest's influence? Travis Charest brought this like crazy realism to the art that hadn't been done before. Like you know where Rob Liefeld is known to draw pouches. Like that's the the joke on Rob Liefeld. Um, like Travis Charest put pouches on characters and they look like they were there for reasons like oh he clearly has like grenades or hand like like uh like bullet clips like a or uh rounds rounds in there or something like that like they looked military the way he drew pouches it looked like they were there for a purpose whereas rob like it's kind of like oh you know belts have pouches and that's how it is you know and uh, you know, not that that's a bad thing. You okay. know, well, one of my characters has pouches. Okay. So, but, uh, and then there's just this highly detailed way he did things that that was completely different than a Todd McFarlane. Like McFarlane's known for his, his massive detail, like Charest's, his textures were just like, they were European, uh, mixed with an American influence. And um, that's something I hadn't seen before. Like I honestly, I hadn't been exposed to very much European art before. But uh, people would mention like, oh, you can tell he has this this artist influenced in his work, you know, and, and I'll go back and I'll check out like Mobius, stuff like that. And just see all these other artists that potentially have influenced him. And it's just like, wow, this is completely different than than anything I've ever seen growing up. So um, Travis brought a lot of that to it and his uh, panel composition. He just laid panels out so differently. A lot of open panel, like a lot of uh, um, open scenes that are like kind of merging into each other and just somehow they worked. You knew where your, like your eye knew when to stop and that, okay, this is the next panel, even though there was no border or anything like that. So just really amazing stuff. Cool, cool. All right, and then so like my most modern influences, uh, obviously I've talked about him multiple t- times. He's my most recent influences, Simone de Mayo. So I don't need to really go back into depth on him. His uh, you know manga style influence and panel layouts, very very good. Uh, he's also a colorist. Yeah, he does the coloring, and we only find them when they're dead. So interesting. And uh, nice. But another guy, major influence on me, and. Um, there's just something about his work. It's it's very simplified, but just the way he throws lines and it just all works together so, so well. The best teeth in the game is Ryan Otley. Um, no one draws a better set of teeth than Ryan Otley, uh, in my estimation. So, um, and, that's, and that's huge because a lot of the expression on your face comes from your eyes, your eyebrows, and your mouth. And so, uh, you know, an easier thing to ma- uh, to master is is eyes, you know, and eyebrows. You know, you raise them up, you you squint them down, you know, you do obviously different things with the eyebrows, but it's kind of limited. And but the mouth, the mouth is has so much expression in it, and Ryan is just so good with it. It's it's amazing. Like it, you check out the teeth, and you're like, how how are you even doing it this good? And it's not like they're overly rendered or anything like that. They're just it's perfect. 
every single time for whatever reason. It's just something he does so well. Um, yeah, so so Ryan is just uh, with the facial expressions, the teeth. Like if you haven't read Invincible, go read Invincible. It's one of the best, if not the best, modern superhero comic today. Um, it's finished. It's uh, twelve volumes, I believe. And uh, it, man, I I love that book so so much. I think he drew out of uh, I think it's like a hundred and sixty to one hundred seventy issues. I think he drew like a hundred and fifty of them. And and so that, wow. yeah, like that's a feat in itself. Like he's wicked fast um, and just just so so good. Um, I own two two pages by him, two pieces of original art. Um, one is a page of Invincible, and one is a page of Amazing Spider-Man, which he was working on most recently. And, uh, yeah, the great pages. The Invincible page, it was from uh, a monster girl and robot page where they're having a fight. It's kind of a crucial part of the story. And so I was, I was happy to get that. What was cool about Ryan's originals, he would sell you the pencils and the inks at one price. So I th And it was a crazy cheap rate. Pretty great rate. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, and then the Amazing Spider-Man one, there's a page where it's it's Kingpin. And it's, it's honestly, it's the dialogue. Obviously, the art's beautiful. But the dialogue on the page was just so funny that I had to own the page. It was a Kingpin hiding behind a curtain at a banquet. And... Uh, the, uh, one of the waiters comes up and he goes, sir, we're all out of uh, meat. Uh, all that's left is vegetables. Should we should we scramble and try to order something else? Should we try to go pick something up? And Kingpin says, no. When the Kingpin goes vegan, everyone goes vegan. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the page. And so that's I was like, okay, well, well, I, I got to own that. Um, so, yeah. So Ryan Otley, huge influence. Let me ask you a follow-up Yeah, question. absolutely. Who is the primary influence behind your more recent switch or or morphing into a more manga style of comic that's that's a that's a good question i think i i okay so there are so some of these minor influences and they're not not as major as ryan uh is like daniel warren johnson and uh, he started bringing this manga movement to his work which i was actually doing for like here and there i wasn't doing it very often and um uh he just popularized it and it kind of it's so weird it was kind of like it gave me permission to do what i was already doing but just do it all the time and so so that was one thing and um another thing is i i was just drawing in a more cartoony manner and um like oh, see i always have and and i don't think you watch wrestling right growing up correct so so for the people that did watch wrestling it's like when i was wrestling i kind of had a bret hart base which turned into like uh, a a tony jaw or jet lee overthrow on top so like my base was this uh you know very technical american wrestler with like martial arts on top of it and then, so I always say my my comics art style is a Jim Lee base with kind of that same martial arts style on top of it. And um, um, you know, I mentioned him was uh, J. Scott Campbell. J. Scott Campbell is a more cartoony Disney version of Art Adams and Jim Lee. And I was like, my my style is something similar to that, but a little bit more manga. And just as I was drawing, stuff comes out naturally. It's like, well. Um, you know, after a while, I stopped wrestling 
trying to wrestle like Bret Hart all the time. It was just like certain things I did like him and then other things just morphed into their own thing. And I, I think that's what was happening and is happening with my art style. It's like, okay, I'm, I was trying to draw, draw like Jim Lee for so long, but now the things that I do draw like him, I just draw like him and that's just how I draw them. But other things are morphing into just their own thing, just something I do naturally. And that's kind of the tale for most artists. You usually have your influences and you're trying to emulate them. And just over time, you just start doing things on your own or you do something accidentally or on purpose. And you're like, hey, I like the way I do that. And it's not something that your major influence does. And you just start incorporating other things into your style. So to to mention totally. one person in general, I, I think would be a little tough. But um, definitely seeing guys like Daniel Warren Johnson and uh, Simone DeMaio, like just do other things that are are not standard American comics and seeing it like, hey, people actually like that. And I like that. And, and it's okay. It's okay to mix yeah. and mash. You don't have to just stick with this one thing. And, and it's kind of, I think it's just an artistic breakthrough. Like, like, like you and your, um, that makes sense. Yeah. You and you and your novel, you know, it's just like you, you do your first draft and you think it's badass and you threw, you know, everything at the wall and you thought everything was going to stick, but what stuck wasn't what you thought. And then what did stick, you're like, yeah, yeah this is the best shit. And so I, I think it's yep. very, very similar to that. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. And and in fact, um, when people, when we talk about things like Kadoja, what I'm always most interested in talking about is the third most influential thing into Kadoja, because I think the first two are quite obvious. First two are Godzilla and H.P. Lovecraft. Those are the two biggest influences in Kadoja. But the third biggest influence is Death Note. Um, have oh, you seen Death Note? Yes, I have. I actually watched that last year for the first time. I'm a massive fan of Death Note. Absolutely massive. Um, every time I talk about it, it makes me want to go watch it again or read it again. Did you like, and, um, uh, did you I, watch the anime as well? Uh, I did watch the anime. I, I mean, I have an issue with Death Note and it's based in kind of reality because once you know the reality, you sort of can't unsee the fiction, if that makes sense. Okay, so is it... And, th- and this is someone told me this, so I didn't know what was true exactly. Is it because they kind of changed yeah. the ending from the anime to the manga? Okay. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Check the notes. Check the notes if you don't want to hear Death Note spoilers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for Christ's sake, just go watch Death Note and then hit pause. And, and we'll we'll be here 12 hours later after you're done, Just <laughs> and then you can go to it. So... Here's the thing. I I used to own the graphic novels and they're gone. And I haven't gotten the strength to rebuy them yet because I just feel like I own these things, you know. I do own the anime right now. But uh what I'm talking about specifically is that there is a there is an organic end to the Death Note story mm-hmm. that was in fact the real end of the Death Note story. And then what happened was Death Note was such a runaway smash that there was a demand for more Death Note. And that is when the author came back and created the continuation and the final, final ending of the Death Note story. However, I don't. I ignore everything after what I believe was the real organic ending of the Death Note right. story. Right, and that's what I thought too, not even not even knowing that. Watching the, the, the show, I'm like, 
wait, it's not over. It's still going. <laughs> like I thought that was, would yeah, be, it, it's, exactly. it's definitely exactly. the natural ending for sure. Exactly. So I, I, when I sat down with Rachel, I even bought it and I said, babe, we are going to sit here. We're going to watch death note, but I'm going to tell you, we're going to stop like eight discs into this 12 disc collection because I just ignore the last three discs because I know the story behind them. And the story is money talked and they created more content. So to me, what the authorial end of the story is, is actually the first quote ending and, and happy us. I haven't spoiled anything. Um, but to that point, so I have no idea whether the manga and the anime actually differ from each other. But what I do know is that I ignore the second ending. Okay. But um, that said, what I love about Death Note and which, you know, is not a particularly obvious influence in Kadoja, although I hope once I say this, people who read it will understand it. What I love about Death Note is the battle of wits between the two primary characters, Kira and L, mm-hmm. and how it is so intense. And like they will... For those not familiar with Death Note, they there will be conversations where they are talking to each other and you're in both of their heads and both of them are playing this intellectual chess match where they understand that what they say, like if I say this, then then Kira is going to say this because he has to out of social grace. And then you switch to Kira and and the line gets said and then Kira's like, well, he knows I have to answer this out of social grace. So I'm going to say this back and forth. And it's just like this insane back and forth that exists on two pure levels of the real and the intellectual. And it is so awesome the way they do it. And, um, and so what I tried to do and what I t- still try to do, although it's, it's turned into a bit different of a story, is in the first five to eight issues, I just wanted to make it kind of this, this intellectual back and forth between actually General Cruz and the Kadoja DNA droid itself and have it be this, you know, I, I, I'm outsmarting you and I created you, but you're outsmarting me because you've kind of gone sentient. And, and that's the part that I don't understand. So it becomes this try to one up each other um, kind of uh, schematically or, or uh, there's a word that I'm looking for here, but you get the point. Mm-hmm. You get the point. So anyway, um, it's, it's not death note, but there's an influence of death note there. And, and that's far more interesting to me to talk about than say the obvious influences of Godzilla and HP Lovecraft, which are, you know, in plain sight no that's for lack of a better that's way super it. interesting um i i think those little touches are what makes your story different than others you know and and it's all all of our influences uh yeah all of our influences that's what creates our stories it's not just one necessarily you know it's not me just trying to uh reimagine what jim lee did it's just like no no i got my own stories totally you know and and you have yours so and and to your point too to bring it back to you there's already one jim lee you don't need to be the second. Yeah, exactly. You need to be the first Scott Lost. Anyone that's not Jim Lee is going to be a knockoff Jim Lee. You're going to be a lesser version exactly. of whoever you're trying to emulate. So, And that's not something exactly. that anyone should want to be. And that's why, in a weird way, the seasoning influence is the third influence, the fourth influence, the influence that, that you and I, you and I may not know that our next influence is sitting in our unread comic book stack right now or my unread novel stack, but it's there. And and yes, they get smaller because to use your term, the base of what's there is still there. But in a lot of ways, it's the influences that are really going to separate you. You know, there's this line, I think it's relatively famous, um, steal from one person, you're a plagiarist, steal from 
300 people and you're a genius <laughs> and and that's that's the difference mm-hmm. you know like like you just you just can and and that's why it gets back to the you know the the kind of back end of something i think i said a couple episodes ago you write every day and you read every day because it's those influences that just seep into your sediment and then you process them, process them, whether you're realizing it or not, to use Gary um, Hodge's term, kind of the composting thing. And you know that something's going on in there. And then sooner or later, that smorgasbord of influences is all going to come out in you. And, and that's the part that's the coolest, right, to get into these things. So in an interesting way for you, Scott, what you've done is through time kind of construct your, your you know, roots to the trunk, to the, to, the, to the branches, to the leaves. And now here we are at the tree with the leaves. And it's, again, it's kind of the leaves that people see and it's the leaves that are going to make you differentiate from other people. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, I was I was – Looking at the well, okay, so the Drawtober issue, when I was trying to switch the single images to panels, I had to try to create borders in which uh, you know these images would fit with each other onto a page. And I remember one of the panels I was trying. It's this very '90s, very uh, Wildstorm Studio panel. It's kind of like this scratchiness, and and you're, it's usually used in like a impact. Or an explosion, like uh, to emphasize uh, something big happening, and, and that's when it's usually used. And I tried using it, and I was looking at it, and I'm just like, this just doesn't work. This doesn't work for me, you know. And it's just, like, it's a very gymly thing to do. Uh, but I was like, I just don't like it. I don't like it with with my work anymore. It's it's not something that's going to fit. And I redid it, and I did kind of more angular panels, you know. And it wasn't. Um, and it's something we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago with my backgrounds. Instead of straight on shots, I was like using Dutch angles, stuff like that. Um, that works with mm-hmm. with panel borders as well. You can Dutch angle a panel border and it creates just a different element to the art. And so that was something I tried instead. And that was something that was actually from a modern uh, a modern influence, uh, Simone de Mayo. He has a lot of angular panels and uh, something about it just it fits so so well and um you know it's like yeah this is this is it this is how i'm doing it and after i started doing that i noticed a bunch of other artists that i enjoy actually do that as well so i just wasn't picking up nice. on it for whatever reason so um it's cool it's like yeah. it's like when you're like man i never see this car and then after you see it once you see it everywhere you know it's just kind of one of those things so well, I mean that so that wraps up the influences. So I think it's it's time for us to get into the other big question for the episode, right? Which is um I guess do you do you have the email in front of you that you can kind yep. of read or do you want to just sum up what Gary Hodges said? Yeah, I, I can read it. I got it, I screen capped it. Um hey guys, so I was asked if I wanted to appear on a YouTube show, the indie review show, check it out, as a guest reviewer, sharing any indie book of my choosing. I said, that sounds awesome. Let me look through my library, make a pile of indie, and decide which one I'd most want to bring to the show and tell. And right away, I ran into a problem. What the fuck is indie, really? Is it simply not Marvel or DC? Is it creator-owned? Is it self-published? Is it okay if the company in question is quote-unquote small? Uh, well, then what a- well, then, what is small? 
Is indie extremely broad, including even massively popular classics like Prince Valiant or EC Comics? Or did the creator have to have a photocopy in it, uh, photocopy it at a copy store and staple it together in his garage? Or is he a sellout? Are you the man and part of the problem <laughs> if you have an ISBN? Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, it's, that's so, pretty solid. Uh, you can tell he's a writer. I am paralyzed by these questions, not even sure how to start my indie pile. Maybe it's like Justice Stewart's famous line about how he couldn't define hardcore pornography, but, quote, I know it when I see it, end quote. But if someone put a gun to your head, if you had to come up with something, how would each of you define an indie comic? Cheers, Gary Hodges. Whew, okay, so you actually dropped this on me about 30 minutes before we were recording. Yes. So I've I've had I've had 30 minutes to synthesize it. And I, I think it's fair, Scott, to kind of let's first summarize a conversation we had some episodes ago. Yeah, I was going to say we actually we kind of came out a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, we touched and, base and what on you this had said bit. basically was, yeah, and we did and we did. And, and so for you, it was really when you think about comics, there's Marvel and DC and then there's a bunch of publishers that you would qual- call quote third party publishers, not indie. Yes. So that would be Image, that would be Dark Horse, that would be um Dynamite, uh IDW and and then at that point is where it starts to get a little bit interesting. I'd say Boom and Boom and Valiant as well. Boom and Valiant, right. And and so that was when I came up with the kind of counter of I mean, Starbucks was sort of indie, but they made it big, you know, like at one point, and this is going to be an operative word where I'm going to kind of revamp this in a second. At one point, Starbucks was indie and now they they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that at one point is pretty key because damn near everything in the world starts out as indie. McDonald's was one restaurant somewhere in the Los Angeles area at some point, and now they are. You know the stand-in corporation that people the uh, hate indie for re- darling, the indie darling known as Amazon, <laughs> started yeah, off in the exactly, video. exactly. That was my favorite line from exactly. that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like we did talk about this before, and and I don't really, I, I'd rather just kind of launch off from that point and talk about it a little bit more because you said something interesting, and I'm gonna kind of take a little bit of it out, and 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 I will turn this into my definition. There's almost two checkboxes that I boil it down to. What does your investment situation look like? Do you have investors, in other words? And then number two is, what what does that title page look like when, when I open the page of your comics where it says, written by, published by, blah, blah, blah? So for me, it's kind of like, if that letterhead page is a bit too big, like I see a whole lot of names there, I am starting to question if you're indie. And if you have investors, I'm starting to question a little bit if you're indie. So maybe that's where I am because indie, you know, Amazon was indie at one point. Starbucks was indie at one point. McDonald's was indie at, at one point. But at some point, you do hit that inflection point where you're just not indie anymore. And at one point, Boom was indie. At one point, um, who else did we mention? Dynamite, IDW. Yeah, IDW was probably indie. Um, at one point, Dark Horse was probably indie. Image, however, in Keith's mind, was never indie because they were nothing but a bunch of superstar creators from Marvel that formed their own company. So it's it's hard for me to think that 
image at any point in time was indie. Again, I'm not saying I don't like image. I buy a lot of image books, but I, I would go with your definition of saying the third party. So I suppose that's where I land. How about you? Yeah, I'd say that's 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 exactly where I land as well. Yeah, my major thing is are you the person that's putting money into the product or is the company, you know, is the company fronting a lot of it? Are they fronting half of it? Like depending all on that, that's like a major key. Or if you're the president of the company, are you putting your own money on the line, right? Because if you're the president of the company and you're getting paid a salary, I think that's kind of where you're going, right? And and you're not paying for the printing necessarily, then maybe you're not Indian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're not paying for the 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 printing and i mean like look 215 you guys are very indie you guys are a very small uh company and so you uh, you know you're you you own part of the company so there's artists and, and creators uh that have books under you and so that would still fall under that banner because they're i don't know i don't know you guys' process so but i'd imagine as you as the company you guys are funding the cross cost for the printing so you know it's still an indie book yes. you know uh, as far as i'm concerned but that falls into your category of do you have investors you know like you own part of the company you're putting money in the company that's not an investor you know what i mean so um yeah yeah I th- oh I, I encourage people to look at the title page on 215 books <laughs> by by that definition yeah go for it go yeah crazy. yeah yeah that's uh yeah exactly right i think we fall in line perfectly on that i agree image is nothing but superstar artists uh, to start. That's how they create it. They have tons of very indie people that work, um, not work, they have their books under Image Comics. So I guess there is a line there. Um, But the fact that you are under Image, so Image usually takes care of the printing cost. They recoup their printing cost. I think it's like 10% or something like that. And um, And then the rest is you. So... Um, mm-hmm. And if you're not a superstar creator, they don't really pimp out your books like they do when Donnie Cates or Tom King or uh, Scott Snyder and Tony Daniel put a put a book up out there. You know, you'll hear all about those books, but there's a, a bunch of books that get published through Image that you've never heard of. And so, so you know, there's the line. Therein lies, you know, the rub. Gary does bring up the whole I'll know it when I see it line. And I, and I think there is something to that. People might might view it differently. People might view Image as indie. If you picked you know, up... I, I don't necessarily, and you... Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't view that necessarily, and you don't either, but you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. I mean, for me, I definitely kind of currently have a hard line at, do you have your own section in previews <laughs> at the front? And if you do, you ain't indie. Right, exactly. Um, and I think to that extent, though, there are also a couple companies that, you know, even it even leaks over because when you leaf through a previews, I'm pretty sure that Boom and Valiant are in the other publishers section, but I wouldn't necessarily consider them indie. Yeah, and this is where it gets tough. Are they indie or are they just, you know, third party, but they haven't quite hit yet? Right, exactly. That might be Oni, uh, Vault. Aftershock, um, Scout. Oh, God. Scout. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and and to me, those guys are all indie, and you know, I'll just I'll just go from there and figure it out. I mean, you know, it, I don't know, I, I haven't looked at the letterheads on their company, but uh, but that's always you know an interesting thing to take a look at as well. And usually, more often than not, if you cruise through Artist Alley and uh, you pick up a book through Artist Alley, it's more than likely going to be an indie book, you know, unless it is an Image Creator yeah. or something like that. Uh, yes. Yeah, like um. It's kind of crazy. Um, Terry Moore, 
uh, Strangers in Paradise of Tr- Strangers in Paradise fame. His books are indie. Like yes. even though he's oh he's very he's well known. Indie. He's an indie guy. Oh, he's indie as fuck. Yeah, and it's just like yeah, yeah. He's t- Terry. He's he's Terry Moore is indie Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to that, it's probably Dave Sim. Yeah, that's yep. Jeff Smith, mm-hmm. Terry Moore. I might be missing somebody, but those you know maybe it's a three person Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Yep. All right. One hundred percent. I agree. All right. So I, I think that, and then and obviously goes without saying, uh, the accidental aliens and two one five. Those are definitely books you should consider putting in your stack to talk about on the show. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, I guess with that, we will, um, we're going to close off this episode, man. So in terms of me, my social media is at Keith Decibel on Instagram. That's Keith. And then for all things Kadoja, it's at Kadoja Kaiju. And you could find me at Scott Lost on Twitter and Instagram S-C-O-T-T-L-O-S-T and Facebook.com forward slash Scott Lost. And you can find all things Keith at the moment at KeithRFoster.com. You're going to get some blog posts there. You're going to get Kadoja and you're going to get a web store with some Kadoja stuff there. Awesome. And you could find my books at AccidentalAliens.com, The Second Shift, The Tale of Minimum Wage Workers During the Day, and Superheroes at Night, and Wanders of Melisanda, Anthropomorphic Dinosaurs versus Humans, all available there on that site, AccidentalAliens.com. And of course, if you have questions for us, you can hit us up at makingcomicspodcast at gmail.com. We will answer your questions on the air. Anything we haven't talked about, something we've talked about a little bit, kind of like the the topic of indie comics. We've mentioned a little bit and, you know, we expand a little bit there for Gary. So uh, if you got some more questions, you don't have to be named Gary, Gary Yap or Gary Hodges to send us one. So uh, email us there. Yeah, and with that, um, that brings this week to a close. So I will see you next week, brother. All right, my man. I will see you then.